Regenerative Medicine today. This is John Murphy, and it's my pleasure to have today two guests who are well known and respected for the services they provide for many, many scientists and engineers. Uh, they manage and operate the Center for Biological Imaging at the University of Pittsburgh. First, it's my pleasure to introduce Dr. Simon Watkins. Dr. Watkins is the founder and director of the center. And also with uh, Dr. Watkins today is Dr. Donna Stoltz, who is the Associate Director of the Center for Biological Imaging. Thank you both for joining us today on Regenerative Medicine Today. Hi, John. I thought we'd start by just describing the center and what its capabilities are and uh, give you some idea of how we work with folks to solve scientific questions using optical techniques. If you think about it, optical microscopy has changed dramatically in the last 15 years from a bunch of technologies which looked at things in a very descriptive fashion. Most of us remember our time at high school when you'd stare down a microscope and see something and most of you would remember seeing color, trying to understand what the patterns meant. But it was all static and it was all very dead and it was all very descriptive. Since that time, probably in the last, as I said, 15 years, there's been a huge set of advances in technologies which we can use to understand molecular and cellular behavior in living and dead systems using specific markers for individual molecules. And we can also do this at every level of resolution from the types of studies that Donna performs in her area of management, which is using electron optical techniques, to my life, which is mostly using a living system approach where we look at molecules and cells inside the living system. The sort of source of this has been the development of genetically encoded proteins where we can color them different colors. Many of you have heard of GFP, which was the guys who've discovered and uh, advanced that technology were the winners of the Nobel Prize for Chemistry this year. That allows us to see individual molecules in the context of the system in which the molecules operate. So now we can find individual molecules. But concurrent with that has been a huge growth in the technologies available to see things. Changes in cameras, the robotics that drive the microscopes, computing, and cellular advances have allowed us to really probe what goes on inside a system with exquisite resolution in three dimensions over time. The devices we have in the center, which Donna and I run, probably is one of the largest centers in the country. Some people think it's the largest center in the country of its kind. And Especially if there's something that's made commercially, we have it in the center. If you know anything about the microscopes we have, and well, why I should introduce them, light microscopy, which is the use, and principally fluorescence microscopy, allows us to image this green fluorescent protein. Now, there's a family of microscopes called confocal microscopes, which optically section. Uh, in other words, they take a cell, if, if you can imagine the cell as a loaf of bread, and they slice it much the way a bread slicer would and then you can put it all back together again. Now this technology gives us very, very high resolution information about where molecules are inside that cell. Those devices are fundamental to the center. We actually have 15 of them right now. Most of those machines are available to users. Once you're trained, you can use them and have access to them through an internet booking system. 
which is run by the center. We also have a lot of systems which combine that technology with a living system approach where we can look at how molecules move around in 3D space and how organelles interact with each other, how cells interact with each other, and we can do that inside the living system. Finally, from that point of view, we also have devices which can go very deep or relatively deep inside the living system. This is using a technology called multi-photon microscopy, which allows us to go multi-millimeters inside the living system. So those kinds of devices are used for all sorts of technologies from imaging heart through skin, looking at where cells are inside the living system. Again, we can provide access to these devices such that people can use them readily on their own with their technicians and students. Donna, do you want to say something about the electron optical capabilities? What we do basically is we manually section material, tissues, cells, because electron optics can only look at very thin sections of material. In fact, 70 nanometers is probably the thickest section that we can look at with reasonable amount of uh, resolution. That being said, we perform a really different process to the, to the system, looking at organelles and organellar ultrastructure relative to the cell and the tissue. You can look at organelles like mitochondria and peroxisomes, endoplasmic reticulum, using light microscopy very well. Uh, Simon does this all the time, and especially in his live cell imaging. But it doesn't give you the ultrastructure. And these days, a lot of the processes that are evaluated are what's going on at the organellar level. Autophagy is a big example of that. Autophagy is when the cell is eating its own organelles. And you can't really visualize that well using light microscopy because these organelles are at the limit of, of the resolution of light. So we've seen a huge increase in the amount of usage at our facility to actually look at autophagy. And these are always done in concert with either um, live cell imaging or confocal imaging from a lot of different standpoints. One other thing is that in, if you're looking at tissues, you can't actually do a lot of live cell imaging on tissues the way you would like to do it, looking at how like autophagy processes proceed. So basically a lot of what we're doing now is tissue evaluation of autophagy with a lot of different investigators here at the University of Pittsburgh and in remote places like Japan and Oregon and some other people who have actually contacted us to help them with this particular technique. So these tools that you've briefly begun to describe to us are absolutely essential for many scientists in terms of the various studies that they conduct. And I know that this complex of equipment you have is a, is a tremendous capital investment. So before we begin to investigate a little more of the scientific applications, is there any guesstimate as to what the <laughs> gross investment is you have in the center? The uh, total investment is probably around $15 million to $20 million in equipment. And we're very fortunate in our ability to get the devices we have available to us garnered through federal grants the NIH. Because we are a leading center, we work very closely with the companies that build the equipment. So commonly, we would take a prototype device, place it in the center, and work with the company to improve it. And at the end of the time we've been testing it, they would let us keep it. It's very generous from the point of view of the company, but they also get a great deal out of it. An example, we've been working with a prototype multi-photon system for, Olymp for Olympus. Um, in fact, some of the work we were doing was with some of the faculty here at MERM, with Mike Sachs, for example, looking at heart valves. 
and uh, we worked out all the problems with that device in, by putting it into a real-world, real-context, multivariate, multi-sample environment, which a company cannot do because they're engineers. They don't have access to the variety of specimens and so forth that we have. So they benefit by putting the instrument they're trying to sell through a real, if you will, a sort of a boot camp test. They get data sets that they can use to sell the instrument, but generally we either get the device at incredibly high discount or as a gift at the end of the period. That's happened multiple times. Instrumentation grants that, as I said, were the, the meat and potatoes of getting the money to pay for the instruments. We've probably had 10 or 12 of them now. Right now we have three pending, which will, if we're successful, we'll bring in another $2.5 million worth of equipment into the center. So those are the main devices we use. We, we have a, right now we have 25 different instruments, and each instrument costs around half a million dollars. Now, the question that most people ask when they come to see the center is, how on earth do you pay for all these devices? You know, how do you manage them? How do you service them? How do you keep them running? It must be very expensive. It is very expensive. The, we have to generally generate about one and a half to two million dollars a year in grant funding to pay for the systems, to keep the techn technicians running the systems, and so on and so forth. However, we are an academic center. We are not a facility that just has toys and in rooms. Donna and I are both tenured faculty. We are senior faculty, and our interest is scientific, not being a technician for someone else's postdoc, I guess, is the other way of looking at it. So it's an intellectual enterprise, and because of that, we've generated a, a way of funding the center which does not demand money-changing hands, which is the way a classic core service would run. Probably neither of us would do this if we had to work that way. The way we run the center and have grown since its incar first incarnation some 16, 17 years ago is to collaborate with individual groups, investigators or individual investigators to generate grant funds with together. So much as you would collaborate with a person who has any technology or skill that you don't have, you work together, you write grants together, and if you're successful, you have funding together, uh, which allows you to pursue the scientific cause at a very high level. Now, that being said, we do provide services to industry. For example, we have folks from the Heinz company who spend many hours a month looking at the flow dynamics of ketchup using confocal microscopy. I have no interest in that. Those who do it are very pleasant and very nice, and they know what they're doing. Um, we use that as a revenue stream to help augment the instrumentation we already have. So to answer your question, John, we have a lot of toys. They're very current. We don't have anything that's old at all. We've been very fortunate to build the best group of equipment we can. And we fund it by keeping a high-end intellectual collaboration with each other. This seems to serve the community in which we work, which is not only the local community, but as Donna spoke, the national and international community very well. For example, we have grants with diverse institutions all over the country, and it works, as we suggested, at a very high level of collaboration and productivity. Very interesting uh, overview of, uh, of what you do and, and how you do it. You speak of toys, but uh, I know that many, many, many scientists regard your resources as essential tools. And, uh, of course, the if you, other... If you have a car, you can have a car, which gets you from A to B. That's a tool. <laughs> a BMW is a toy. <laughs> <laughs> and so we try to keep at the best level so we have toys. Yeah. 
And of course, as you, you indicated, the other important part of this is the fact that uh, you have a cadre of uh, people that know how to train others to use and, uh, and apply these tools uh, <laughs> to uh, different applications. There are actually uh, 20 people in the center right now. There's Donna and myself, we direct the center. Um, there's two other faculty, Katie Beatty, who's a vet PhD, who runs a lot of the live cell imaging capabilities of the center. Her own independent research is in lymphogenesis and disease of the lymphs. Claudette Sancroix, who helps a lot with, mostly with areas involving lung biology, which is a big area, but that's because it's her own primary interest as well. Her faculty appointments in environmental environmental and occupational health but uh, and her interest is in the physiology of the lung then Donna's interest is in liver regeneration liver disease and I'm something of an immunologist not a real one but I try to be one then we have a huge ar array of technical staff because you don't let untrained people loose on these devices without appropriate training if you can imagine it would be not dissimilar to me sitting down inside a fighter jet and all I can do is go bah because I have no <laughs> idea what I'm doing right I see all these knobs and dials but I cannot drive it and if I did drive it it would fall over and I you know make a mess so we make sure that everyone who comes into the center is fully trained now the center's resources which we allow people access to are within a separate part of the center which has 24-hour key card access. So once people know what they're doing, we basically let them have at it any time of the day or night. So obviously they really need to be well-trained. So we have a group of four people, pretty much, whose job is to train people. And one guy in the lab whose job is to maintain the environment in which the instruments work just by keeping them clean. Uh, interestingly, this philosophy of high-end training and maintaining the instrument quality aggressively has meant that we get no abuse. We've never had any abuse of any instrumentation since the center started because perhaps of two, for two reasons. The first of which is that people respect the instrumentation because they, normally they're not paying to use it. It all works through collaboration. And secondly, because the instrumentation is kept at a very high level of performance. So we have had no problems in that arena. After those folks working for the center, who then we have folks who do preparations for people. We don't expect everyone who comes into the center to be an expert at preparation for electron microscopy or light microscopy or lysol microscopy. So we have multiple people in each area to help you perform your experiment to the highest levels. So essentially, we're a one-stop shop. You come in with a problem, you discuss the problem with the faculty, we come up with the best solution to solve the problem, and we pick the technologies, be it electron light or lysol microscopy, confocal microscopy, multiphoton, whatever, and we then help you pursue that goal. So Donna has five people doing electron optics. Now that may sound a lot, but in reality, the most electron optical labs throughout the country shut down because they were so expensive to run when confocal microscopy came along because people felt that that was going to replace electron optics. What that has led to in the long run for us is the fact that our electron optical facility is incredibly busy with collaborations from all over the place because A, we have the technologies to do things, but B, we have the expertise. I mean, Donna and her staff to interpret what they see and put it in the scientific context in which the work's done. Again, this speaks to the high-end intellectual collaborative nature of the center.
in the light microscopy lab, we also have a similar number of folk, each with their own technologic specialization. The idea being now that we as a center can provide you with a place where you can come with absolutely no knowledge whatsoever and leave with an understanding of how the technology works, how it can be applied and is applied to a scientific question, and also have data which actually is meaningful. In reality, you can find anything you want without a microscope, and people do. So we are the gatekeepers of scientific fact in many ways using microscopes because we are very aggressive in making sure that what leaves the center is credible, rational, and actually reflects what's going on there. Not everyone's happy with that because people want to find things. However, we have a professional reputation we wish to maintain, and therefore we not only provide resources to do the experiments, to interpret the experiments, but we also make sure that whatever leaves the lab is reliable, credible, and of quality. As we listen to the resources that you, you have and how you apply them, it, it seems to me that perhaps for many of our listeners, if we've picked a few select examples how these resources are used and I know you cover the waterfront from the cellular level to what I would characterize as the macro level in terms of tissue and tissue engineering and so forth. Perhaps one of you or both of you could just provide a few select examples starting with the cellular level of how the resources that you have are used in various scientific investigations. In many ways, John, you, you just said in give examples at each level. Um, in actual fact, it's more of a continuum. We go from the single molecule, the whole animal. And as I said at the beginning of this discussion, there's a, a huge array of advances both in technology and, and market systems which allow us to investigate at every level. Hit an example. We have spent the last several years working with people working on diabetes at this institution to try and understand the process of islet destruction in type 1 diabetes. So together with uh, Massimo Trucco, Paul Robbins, and Peter Drain, we developed an animal model where we can see the individual insulin molecules within the beta cell. Then using electron optics, where we look at the, where all the individual proteins are inside the cell, Donna and her team were able to show that the molecules that we were making and we were able to see using light microscopes were being packaged and put in the right place inside the individual granules inside the cell. That's only possible using electron microscopy. Then we used high-speed live cell microscopy to show that these granules were appropriately released from the beta cells. So when you took beta cells and released insulin when stimulated with glucose, we showed that indeed we were able to actually mimic a radio amino acid exactly in terms of time and relative abundance when we stimulated these beta cells with glucose. The next step was to see what happened inside the living pancreas. Peter Drain made transgenic animals, and these animals now had this fluorescent protein inside their islets. Using multi-photon microscopy, which you may remember images deep, we were able to image the living animal looking at little, with little windows on the side of the animal, and we could see the process of beta cell granule release inside the living animals. We then wished to look at the islet destruction in diabetes. So using resources from Massimo Trico, we could look at the T cell involvement inside the destruction of the living islets with the fluorescent color we placed in them inside the living animal. Now that assay then allows us to study therapeutics for type 1 diabetes. And that's what we're using it for at the moment. And that's what the JDRF has been funding for the last several years. That's one example. 
Another example is one actually that Donna spoke to earlier when she was discussing the merits of EM, and it's because it's very fashionable this year, so a few <laughs> years ago it was nitric oxide biology, then it was HMGB1, and this year it's autophagy. We have several ongoing studies which involve this process of autophagy, which as Donna spoke to was the process of a cell basically eating itself. We have studies with Dave Perlmutter at Children's Hospital, Bob Clark in critical care medicine, Charlene Chu in neuropathology, Hannah Rabinowitz at the Cancer Center, really? Tim Billier, who's the chair of surgery. That's just a small number. Yeah, that's just actually there's also the whole aging program as well, which is a new program. Now, autophagy, is, as I said, is a, a process where a cell eats itself, and it eats certain compartments. Now, so we have worked with investigators who've generated fluorescent proteins, which allow us to see orthophagosomes. We then use light microscopy to study the uptake, when things are taken up, how they're taken up, how quickly they're taken up, in other words, how quickly the cell eat itself and under what conditions. Because that's a living system, we can modulate the environment and try and stop the process happening or augment the process happening. Now, because we're now looking at very, very fine structural changes, we need to use the electron microscope to find out exactly where, when, and under what conditions and what parts of whatever organelle you're interested in are being autophagocytosed by the cell. These problems can only be studied using optical tools. If you did it on a western blot or a gel or a northern blot or southern blot or PCR, whatever, you are grinding things up, you're removing them from the context of the system in which they live. And if you do that, you can't tell where things were, you don't know when they were there, and basically you do not have the conceptual understanding of what's going on. If you use those tools in conjunction with the optical tools in a cutting-edge system, you augment the amount of knowledge you will recover from the question enormously. And that's why these technologies have become so popular and powerful. What we've been doing recently is looking at phenotypes in mice, knockout mice and transgenic mice that present with a disease. It's a phenotype, but they don't know what's the cause or the aspect, the tissue, or the whole animal that's changed. One of the things that we're using a lot now in electron microscopy is looking at these transgenics and finding out what is the underlying issue with the tissues involved. And we're finding that very, very interesting things looking at it from the ultrastructural level first as opposed to going to light microscopy because you need to have a target with which to look at it. And if you can look at it in ultrastructural terms, it gives you a key as to where to go next. And that's been taking up a lot of our time recently with several different mice phenotypes that have been developed at Pitt or at other institutions. Yeah, classically, that would be the other way around the yeah. way that people think of it, because electron microscopy is probably one of the most arduous and time-consuming scientific pursuits you can have. <laughs> it takes about a week to go from a piece of tissue to a micrograph, and in many ways it's fishing, because when you're looking at cells at a 10, 50, or 100,000 times magnification, knowing where to look becomes very important, because you can only sample very small areas successfully. Luckily, Donna and her team are very expert, so they guess well. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they, we know where to start. <laughs> we know where to start. That's the, that again comes back to the idea of having an intellectual thing, because as, as fully-blown faculty, we have experience that lets us know where to go, in a, well, at least guess mm -hmm. where to go in a, in a pretty successful fashion. An example of that is this aging project right. we're working on, isn't it? Right. Now, this is a knockout animal, which has been generated by Laura Niederhofer. 
and Ben Van Houten and uh, Paul Robbins, and their their interest is in aging. Then we're actually generating a large program grant as we speak. They had this mouse which had a gross phenotype of progeria. Histologically, they could see nothing wrong, really. At the electron microscope level, huge problems in the mouse at all sorts of levels, and all of them reflect massive aging at a very young age. Well, there's a lot of ultrastructural changes that have been documented in the past using different animal models, just using regular aging. In a mouse, usually mice live, what, two years, two and a half years. Well, this one particular type only lives maybe 20 weeks, a half a year. And right now we're trying to get a sense of parallel changes that might be representative of regular aging versus accelerated aging and hoping that we're seeing similar changes in, let's say, my interests are liver, obviously, but also kidney. And we are seeing these changes occurring in kidney and liver that represent aging at the end point, let's say a a two-and-a-half-year-old mouse. Any nephrologist will tell you that nephrologists now still use electron microscopy to diagnose certain types of kidney diseases. And a lot of kidney diseases are coincident with aging. And the key is to show that these things are showing up in these progeric mice, and they are. Changes in the glomeruli, changes in the tubule structure that manifest themselves in kidney disease and aging. So we were really happy about that. (laughs) We're uh, now pursuing it more from the light level and looking at particular proteins that would be changed in those mice. We wouldn't have seen that if we used light microscopy because the structures that we're looking at are too small. I could give you many other examples, John, of how the center works, but I hope we've managed to give you the concept of close integration with the primary scientific question. We very rarely expect an investigator to come in and say, I know what I want to do and I'm going to do this. Actually, most of the time when they do that, we disabuse them of that notion because they're wrong. So <laughs> the goal of this little discussion really is to establish and help you understand the, the richness of the center, the richness of the folks who work at the center, the open door policy we have with respect to access to the center, and the way we try and fund the center. We encourage people to come as well. Running the center is expensive, and we wish to stay at the cutting edge. And to do that, we have to continue to build collaboration and build resources. One final thing. People often ask, why do we do this? Why do you run a service center? And the reality is is that our own personal science, when we get to do it, in my case, understanding how cells in the immune system communicate with each other, or Donna's case, understanding how vascular issues and angiogenesis occurs in the regenerating liver. Without the tools we have, we cannot do our science. And to have the tools we have, to have the success in getting the tools we have, and to continue to build into demands that we work with huge numbers of people. Together, as a united group, we actually achieve significantly more than we would if we were trying to do this on our own. And perhaps that's why the center is so popular, as you pointed out and why we hope to continue to be successful in the future. Thank you. Thanks to both of you for uh, sharing your insight, your strategies, and some of the accomplishments that you realize to date. Uh, as we conclude this particular podcast, I'd like to uh, remind our listeners that we welcome suggestions in terms of topics to cover. You can reach that mail at regenerativemedicinetoday.com. We will post the uh, for biological imaging website on the podcast website, 
So if you have an interest in further exploring uh, opportunities, collaborations, or resources, you can do it through that connection. I still remind you that uh, on the uh, Center for Biological Imaging website, the contacts for Dr. Watkins and Dr. Stoltz. And uh, with that, I conclude this podcast and say we look forward to joining you in two weeks with another exciting interview. Thank you. Thank you.